0: All right. Welcome to Convo. I'm Aaron Stiffney, and we'll be talking about um, our experience on SST in Nicaragua this past summer. So, a little overview of Nicaragua. Um, So, Nicaragua is located in uh, Central America, and uh, to the north is uh, Honduras, and to the south is Costa Rica. And Nicaragua's population is about 6 million, and the capital, Managua, which is right. Alright, well, Managua is the capital and it has a uh, population of about 1.5 million. And then Hinotepe, which is just south of it, I don't know if you can see it, um, is where we did our study term and it has a population of about 28,000 which is similar to Goshen. And um, for service, uh, the majority of us uh, stayed on the west side or central part of Nicaragua and there are two of us um, that uh, did service on the west or the east coast, and Bobby will talk about that.
1: Hi, I'm Bobby Schweitzer, and Yuri and I did service on the Atlantic coast, so I'll talk a little bit about the history, and Yuri will talk a little bit more about the fun things that we did. Not that history isn't fun, it's just I know you probably won't remember a third of what I say. So Nicaragua is normally thought of as one country, but the striking cultural, historical, and geographical differences between the Pacific and Atlantic coasts essentially divides the country in two. A history of indigenous peoples and colonization has created a diversely unique area with regards to people, language, and culture on the Atlantic coast. The Atlantic coast was home to numerous indigenous populations, and in the mid 1600s, an African slave ship wrecked off the coast, and the slaves made it to the coast and started intermixing with the indigenous populations. So we started to have um, native and African Um, genealogy there. Um, Britain established the Atlantic coast as a protector in the mid-1700s and brought a large number of slaves from Jamaica and Africa and these people also began mixing. So after the mid-1600s and 1700s we had European, Jamaican, African, Mosquito, Indian, and other native tribes all mixing together, creating a very, very unique group of people there. this unique mixing of people is also reflected in the language we have on the Atlantic coast there are indigenous languages like mosquito and then there's a form of English called Mosquito English Creole and there's Spanish and other native languages so it's very common for people to speak at least English, Spanish and a native language and we got to see that um, almost every day we were there we would hear, I worked in the de Salud, the health clinic and I could hear people talking in English, Spanish and Mosquito, it was really neat. Um, The Atlantic coast has always struggled for independence from Nicaragua and from Britain. Um, From the 1700s to the late 1800s, uh, the Atlantic coast was under the control of the British, of Britain. And then in 1894, Nicaragua annexed the Atlantic coast and so the Atlantic coast was under uh, Nicaragua's control based in Managua and they didn't have any representation or any really say in how they were governed. And almost a century later, In the 1900s, uh, 1970s, the Atlantic coast won its independence, or didn't win independence, but was granted autonomy. And so now it exists in two autonomous regions, the north and the south. And they have some representation today, and they can educate in their own languages, so that's a good thing. Now, Yuri will talk about fun things.
2: Hi, I'm Yuri. So, Bobby and I got the privilege of going to Pearl Lagoon for our SST service. For service, Bobby helped out at a Centro Dissolute, which is a small clinic. I was part-timing at a school working with first-year kids, helping teach math, Spanish, English, and reading. I also had the opportunity of helping out at a local business called Casa Ulrich, a family-run hotel and restaurant owned by Fred Ulrich. Being a business major, I had the opportunity to work with this business and help out with day-to-day operations. Being on the lagoon, some of our hobbies were to go swimming, hang out with the native kids who taught us how to fish for crabs, and, um, We enjoyed discovering the rich history behind Pearl Lagoon from the natives who have lived there their whole life. We also had the entertainment of attending the Moravian church on Sundays, watching locals play basketball and baseball. We also enjoyed running in the mornings, not only to stay fit, but to run away from the dogs that would chase (laughs) us every time we ran. So that's just some of the things we did um, on the Atlantic coast, and with that, we'll move on.
3: My name is Joshua Jancy, and I'll be talking about a day in the life of Vanessa's tier. So, I would wake up around seven. The sun would be up around six practically every day because of the proximity to the equator. And the first thing I would do is take a shower. Um, If you got lucky, the water was on and you could take a shower from what we consider a shower in the West. However, oftentimes, um, I would take a bucket shower. And either way, it was cold, it was a cold shower, but it felt good because Nicaragua is really hot. So after that, I would eat breakfast, prepared by my host mom, and often wait um, for my group to walk by. We lived, um, the entire S S T group lived within three cities um, near Hinotepe, Hinotepe, Dolores, and Didiamba. And the the group from Dolores would walk to school. So I'd wait, listening to the radio, um, or reading the paper, until my group walked by. So this is us walking to school. Um, Yeah, we walked along a major highway and when we got to school, um, it was a Spanish school so we learned Spanish for about three hours a day and after that we ate lunch at a local restaurant um, and then after that we had a lecture. Um, Anything um, from politics, culture, language, uh, history, um, often from uh, local and that local expert. After the lecture, we would have free time to do what we would,
4: um, hang out with our host families, hang out with the other SSD group. I'm Aaron Bontrager. I'll talk a little bit about food, since that's a big part of what makes up the culture. Um, I think it's safe to say that we all really uh, ended up loving the Nicaraguan food. Um, It might not surprise you that we ate a lot of rice and beans. At almost every meal, we would either eat rice and beans, beans and rice, or gallo pinto which is uh, rice and beans mixed and then cooked together. Um, so that's Gallo Pinto. It took us a while to get used to having rice and beans all the time, but we uh, really ended up liking it, and I'm sure we could all go for a big plate of Gallo Pinto right now. Um, we also had fresh tortillas, eggs, bread, plantains, potatoes, yuca, and lots of amazing fresh fruit. There was also this uh, really strong cheese called guajara, which is in the middle of the plate. Um, It was sometimes fried, and I think it's safe to say that uh, you either loved it or you hated it. Um, We didn't have a lot of meat, but chicken was probably the most common. On the trip to the Atlantic coast that uh, Bobby and Yuri talked about, we got to change up our menu for a few days. We had some really good seafood. And um, some of the food, like the bread and the rice, was cooked using coconut oil, so it was um, cool to get a different flavor there. One of Nicaragua's most special dishes is naka tamales. Um, if you're familiar with, um, yeah, there it is. If you're familiar with um, tamales, naca tamales are really similar, um, except they're larger and they're wrapped in uh, plantain leaves instead of corn husks. The insides filled with cornmeal and either chicken or pork, usually. Uh, we had a lot of coffee to drink, regardless of the temperature outside. And this was often with sweet bread from the local panaderia. And Caleb's family actually um, sold pan on the streets. So that was, uh, yeah, Caleb got to help out a lot with that. Um, and he'd bring some to school for us to eat, too. So... Uh, we also love drinking uh, frescoes, which were made freshly from various fruits, uh, vegetables, and grains. And these were really refreshing. And I, got, I had a lot of fun figuring out what flavors I was drinking. I made a list of about 25 different flavors I had on SST. So, um, yeah, overall, we really enjoyed the food and we miss it.
5: Okay, so i'm going to talk a little bit about like the church aspect um most of the nicaraguans would affiliate with the catholic church but on uh, like on any given sunday you're probably going to find more nicaraguans that are actually going to the um evangelical churches which is the church that's kind of arising in nicaragua right now um so when i was there i really got involved in the evangelical church. I wanted to, I told um, Doug that I would like to get involved in the worship there, and so he put me with a house, a uh, host family that the dad was a pastor, and the mom was really involved in the church as well. And so um, I get there the first weekend, and my mom, or I can't remember my mom or my dad, but they asked me, they're like, would you want to play on, in the church on Tuesday with the worship team? And I was like, Oh, yeah, sure, you know, and I was just thinking, like, we would just, like, go and practice and, like, you know, jam a little bit. So, Tuesday comes around, and I go to the church, and I show up, and and we kind of go back in backstage, and I realize, like, there's a whole service going on, and people are, like, playing music, and, and like, people were worshiping, and my mom's like, okay, go up, go up, and I was like, what? <laughs> I was like because there's like no music or anything. There's just like a guitar. She's like, just go take that guitar and start playing. I was like, um, okay. And so I'm like walking up the the stairs to to the stage and everyone on the stage playing, they're like, hey, how's it going? I was like, hey, I don't know you guys, but (laughs) it's just awesome. (laughs) Um, So I just like picked the guitar up and, you know, kind of, it wasn't amazing because I didn't know half the songs, but it was just uh a really eye-opening experience and pretty just awesome in general how the church there they just it wasn't about like being perfect or you know having to have everything really smooth um it was just really they focused on just worshiping and um just like because it wouldn't matter you know if i was the worst guitar player they all would have still had a great time and um would have still worshiped jesus and so That was something that was really important to them and that was something that uh, I really got out of the culture and really loved about Nicaragua. I'm Maria. And I'm Robert.
6: And we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Nicaragua, um, especially the US influence. Um, In the 1850s, Nicaragua briefly had a president named William Walker. And you might think this doesn't sound like a Nicaraguan name. You would be right. Um, (laughs) At the time, the US was expanding. Um, So, one enterprising fellow said, hey, you know, might as well go be president of Nicaragua. Um, So, he took 60 men and joined one side in a civil war and ended up declaring himself president. This didn't go over super well with the Nicaraguans. He got kicked out of office, um, decided to try again, and ended up getting executed. Um, Unfortunately, this wasn't the end of U.S. influence in Nicaragua. Um, Around 1910, we decided we wanted a canal through Central America. And this is what ended up being the Panama Canal. But originally, we wanted it to be through Nicaragua. So, we asked them if we could build a canal. And they said, no, well, you really can't just cut our country in half because you want to. And we said, well, you're no fun. So we overthrew their government, (laughs) um, logically. And (laughs) then we stayed in Nicaragua for the next 20 years. There were a lot of citizens of Nicaragua who weren't super thrilled about this, um, including um, Sandino, who led a guerrilla movement against this occupation of the United States. Um, And what um, he's saying on this, this is from a museum that we visited, the Sandino Museum, and um, what he's saying is it's better to die as a rebel than to live as a slave. Um, So he still is a national hero in Nicaragua. Eventually, the United States set up a president and left. Um, The president we decided to set up was named Somoza. And the first thing that Somoza did when he gained office was decided that Sandino had too much popular support and so he assassinated him. And then he um, began a 52-year dynasty um, with corrupt elections and um, it was a dangerous time to have opinions. This is a picture from that same museum. It was actually a prison um, during Samoza's time. And um, this is a photo of the Black Panther they kept there. Um, one of the things that they did in that prison is they had cells um, with bars dividing the cell. And then there would be a panther on one side and a prisoner on the other. And the panther could like, reach through the bars. And um, if you stood at the very edge of the wall, then like, you could just get scratched. Um, and so that was one of their methods of torture. Um, despite all of this, um, all of these human rights violations, this during this entire time, Somoza was known as the United States's most valuable
7: ally in Central America. In the 1970s, there was a popular uprising against Somoza, against the Somoza dynasty, which started while there was an SST group there from Goshen College. The students did not listen to what they were told and stayed anyway. So when we were there, we got to read journal entries of the students from the beginning of the Nicaraguan Revolution. Somoza fled the country very quickly during this. And the Sandinistas who took their name from Sandino gained power and implemented a lot of social programs like literacy campaigns, vaccination campaigns, some of the other scenes, we'll talk about these in more depth later. And Ronald Reagan was not okay with this because they were getting funding and arms for their revolution against Somoza from the Soviet Union, even though they were not specifically communists. So he started funding contra-rebels Shortly afterwards, you may recognize the name Contra because of the Iran-Contra scandal. Congress decided, you know what, this is illegal, we shouldn't be funding these rebel groups. They're a very small minority anyway, and they're causing huge amounts of human rights violations. So they cut Reagan off from funding them, which is where the Iran-Contra scandal came from. And. Again, more of the human rights violations will be talked about by another group. The war is over now, but the government is still pretty corrupt. So during this
6: war, um, the, I, the Contra um, War in Nicaragua, We've mentioned some human rights violations. Doug Shirk, one of our SST leaders, was, actually went down there as part of Witness for Peace during that war. And um, his job was to document the violence because it didn't get reported since most of the human rights violations were being carried out by the people who the US supported. Um, so it just didn't get published. So this is a couple of photos from one incident. Um, this is a civilian vehicle which was carrying two kids in the back that got ambushed. Um, So that blood is all from those two kids um, who got shot by the Contras a couple times. Um, This is one of the kids, he lost an arm and ended up being brain damaged and couldn't talk afterwards. And Doug later met, and other witnesses for peace, later met with the Contra group that did this ambush and the Contras defended themselves by saying, oh well, it was a government vehicle, um, even though it wasn't. So having Doug and Maria there, and since they were there in Nicaragua at that time, gave us a really personal connection to that history.
8: Hello, I'm Alejandro Rodriguez, and I'll be talking about um, El Lagartillo. This is where my service place was. Um, So the last weekend of our study term, we went to visit um, El Lagartillo, all together as a group um, and we got to stay the night there and shared some, well, we got to know the families of El Lagartillo and they even um, shared a theatrical performance talking about the environment but they also shared part of their history. Um, I wish I had more time to, sh- to share the full story of El Lagartillo but Since we have limited time, I only have um, a little bit to share. So El Lagartillo was created as a collective in 1983 when the Sandinistas governed Nicaragua. So families at, at this time, they came in from neighboring communities to live in El Lagartillo. At that time, life was a struggle, but for the first time in their lives, they had a chance to create the community they desired from aid from the new government, but their efforts towards obtaining a better living conditions as peasant farmers was brought to a hold by the U.S. War of Aggression against Nicaragua. Since El Agartillo is a collective, they knew that the Contras could attack at any moment. Therefore, they had one person at three, po- at three different posts, day and night. There were seven people that rotated shifts, including a teenage girl and two young boys. Maria Perez, who was 18, Osvaldo Ramirez Laguna and Javier Perez. I can't remember really their, 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 last two, uh, their ages of the last two boys. There's a small cellar in the town where the people would have hid if the Contras would have attacked, but the people didn't realize how violent this attack would be until it really happened. On December 31st, 1984, the U.S. Contras attacked the community of El Lagartillo. There were about 30 Contras, but only 7 people to defend the community. The persons, including my cooperating teacher, who was only six at that time, quickly realized that it wasn't safe in the cellar. So they decided to make a run for the woods to a town of to a town, of Ochoapa, a town four miles away. Jose Angel Perez, Maria Zulinda Perez, Reynaldo Ramirez Laguna, Javier Perez Arauz, Ramiro, Bravo, Salgado, and Encarnacion, Palma. These are the names of the heroes engraved at the gravestone at the north end of their community. Many people fled the town afterwards and sold their land because they were afraid of another country attack. Though life was not easy for any member of the village the hardships experienced during the war of 1980 did not discourage the people of El Lagartillo but only caused them to struggle harder over the last 23 years El Lagartillo has grown into a unique and vital community that was that is known for their the variety of grassroots projects so i could go on and on about how their i mean they've 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 bettered themselves, and they focus more on education to pass on and better the youth but it's as as I was asking and trying to find out information on this on the history of what really happened, you could see the struggle in their in like their people's faces they were scared to tell the story or but yeah that one of the persons told me that it was the last time that she was going to tell the story, and that I felt really bad because I feel that we all need to know the stories of these people, and so I felt that it was my responsibility to pass them on. So if you guys have time, just feel free to come and ask me about their stories. Thank you. Uh, So first off, I would really like to echo what Alejandro was
9: saying, and a lot of us have tons of stories that we don't have time to tell you today. So we'd love it if any of you would wanna come up and ask us questions later on. We can clarify, tell you more stories, stuff like that. But so one of the projects that, or one of the field trips that we did as a group was we went to visit an organic farm of Vicente Padilla, which is uh, the man there standing in the center. And I ended up doing my study there because instead of wanting to do something for my major, I wanted to get something kind of like a new experience. So I wanted to work on a farm and get kind of that different lifestyle and get that instead of doing something that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So I ended up working with Vicente Padilla and his family, his three boys who were 20, 26, 20, and 18. And so I worked and lived with them and their daughter who was 13 and then him and his wife. And so I would work out in the coffee fields with them six hours a day and six days a week. So I got to know them really well. And we got to hear some wonderful stories from Vicente and his family. Uh, One of the main stories is Vicente ended up serving in the army for 10 years. And then after that, he finally saved up enough money to buy a small coffee farm for him and his wife. And that is where they began to raise their family, raise their kids. They had the coffee farm and this was their livelihood. Everything that they owned was on the farm, for the farm and from the farm. And one of the struggles that they came across was there is a large landowner uh, from the family named McEwens. And he owned the land all around Vicente's farm and he was trying to get Vicente's farm to add to his land. So McEwens and hired policemen, thugs, all sorts of stuff just to terrorize Vicente and his family. So throughout this whole process, his family is being threatened, beaten, arrested, like continuously for years and years and through many court battles Vicente and his family ended up finally winning but throughout this entire process they had guns, machetes, all sorts of weapons but the only weapon that Vicente and his family used was telling the truth and using a camera. So Vicente would go out and take pictures of people destroying his land, beating his family and all sorts of horrible stories and some days after work, Vicente would show me all these pictures that he had taken, like he had hundreds of documents, maybe even close to like a thousand pictures that he had taken on his camera of people destroying his land and attacking him and his family and threatening his wife and his daughter. And just throughout this whole time, he continuously was just striving to do it in a peaceful manner and not bring more violence than was necessary. And just didn't react with any sort of violence at all. And he was actually trained in some non-violent action uh, sort of training by a woman who graduated from EMU, sort of a little midnight connection there. Um, but one of his striving factors was to keep hope for the other people who are going through a similar situation as him. And kind of a cap on what uh, some of the other people were talking about with the Reagan administration, one night when the electricity had gone out after playing guitar for a couple hours with my dad, who was just a horrible singer, but loved singing anyways, and put so much passion into it like he would with anyone else, like anything else, he told me about how even though the Reagan administration and the American government had done so much to terrorize Nicaragua, he didn't hold it against the American people, and he didn't hold us accountable for what our government was doing and didn't blame us for our ignorance. Thanks.
10: Hi, I'm Allie, and I'm going to speak a little bit about what Emily and I did for service. We worked in a public health clinic, as you can see with the list of names, there were a lot of us who did health-related things in Nicaragua, from clinics to um, mal, like working with malnourished children and stuff. So the clinic that Emily and I worked in was open from 8 in the morning until 4 at night with a one hour lunch break every day. It was usually pretty busy in the morning. It was first come first serve and so there were a ton of people when we got there and the waiting room was bustling with activity and people were talking over each other and then it usually died down in the afternoon so we were usually out of there, I don't know, by two or so. But even on the days where there were a lot of people in the afternoon, the clinic closed at four regardless and those people would have to come back the next day. This is because the clinic we worked at was public, and in Nicaragua there's both public and private healthcare, and so most doctors who work in the public health sector often work in private as well to subsidize their income because it's pretty poor and it's a struggle to get the necessary supplies and resources for these clinics. So I worked with Dr. Melendez, there's a picture up there in a small exam room every day, and I did a lot of observing, We saw a lot of people with the flu and with diabetes and a lot of kidney stones and kidney problems because they just don't think about drinking a lot of water there. Some of the things I did were to weigh people, take their height. I took a lot of blood pressure. And then by the end, I was telling diabetics what they could and couldn't eat. And the first time, it kind of intimidated me because I was just standing there like usual, kind of on the outside watching him talk to a woman. And he turns to me and he's like, Allie, like... Tell her what she can and can't eat. She's diabetic. Like, what's she supposed to do? And I was like, uh, um, like uh, don't eat bread, maybe? I was like thinking, like, oh, my gosh. Like, what else can I say? I was like, probably shouldn't eat sugar. Like, drink water. I like looked over him for any kind of help, and he was just not having it. He was just like looking at me like, all right, like, what else? And so then he stepped in after a couple of awkward moments and saved me on that. But that was something I definitely got a little more comfortable with as
11: the weeks went on. Hi, I'm Emily, and um, I worked in the same clinic as Allie, but I worked with more of a nurse practitioner named Veronica Jimenez. And um, some days we would work in her office, and other days we'd be in the emergency room. So when we were in her office, we'd do a lot of like well um, baby visits, so we'd give like vaccinations. Um, I also gave birth controls and did kind of like preventative health um, exams for women. When I was in the emergency room, I kind of carried out a lot of the treatments that were prescribed by Dr. Jimena, or Dr. Mendez, And um, so I did a lot of like nebulization and giving antibiotics and wrapping wounds and stuff like that. Uh, so one of the big things in Nicaragua is prevention because there isn't a ton of resources available. So some days um, I would also work with Dr. Mendez and um, we would Uh, because my nurse practitioner had gone out on uh, kind of like a a prevention type of thing, so where she would actually go out and uh, immunize people. Um, She would find, you know, like they would send people out to really um, find like vaccines and do things so people didn't always have to come into the clinic if they uh, didn't or couldn't get there well. And um, we also did a lot of things to prevent dengue, which was a really big source of illness there. And so we would have, uh, in the mornings, when people would sit in the waiting rooms, we would have, like, TVs, and they would um, watch, kind of just watch, um, how to prevent dengue. And actually, the first day that uh, we went to the clinic, we kind of went on this adventizacion, which is where we went out and gave kind of, like, uh kind of like a, a medicine fertilizer type of thing to put in the water supplies to kill mosquito larvae that cause dengue so yeah overall with the limited resources nicaragua had i believe they did a really really good job at kind of like preventing major crises in healthcare. hi i'm becky
12: and i'm jordan
11: And we're going to talk
13: about education in nicaragua so um robert briefly mentioned this earlier but um, a really amazing movement that happened shortly after the revolution that has to do with education was the Literacy Crusade. Um, it was a huge project and many people say that if, if it wouldn't have been possible if Sandinista organizations hadn't already been mobilized from the revolution. But um, what happened was in, during like six months from March through August in 1980, all of the schools in the country closed and over 80,000 teenagers and young adults volunteered to receive a little bit of teacher training and then be dispersed throughout the country, um, mostly in the countryside, to teach people of all ages how to read. And Maria, one of our um, leaders, actually participated in the Literacy Crusade as a young adult. So um, that was a cool connection. Um, The movement was very successful. They reduced the literacy rate the illiteracy rate of people from ages 10 and older from over 50% not being able to read to more about 13%. Um, Because reading is such an important skill, um, sometimes the Literacy Crusade is thought of as a second phase of the War of Liberation. And um, after the crusade was over, enrollment in the country's educational system doubled from what it was before the revolution.
12: On service, I worked in an elementary school in a small town of Masatepe. The school I worked at was the second poorest school, like in the region area. During my service, I was an assistant teacher and a PE instructor in a third grade classroom. On the first, one of the first things I noticed about the school was the little supplies the school had. Literally, the supplies my school had were notebooks and pencil, and even some kids didn't have that. Books were also lacking, my school had none. However, fighting against odds, Nicaragua's education is headed in the right direction. After years of education being a low priority in Nicaragua, recent years suggest the priority level of school is changing. During the years of the Somoza dictatorship, only 60% of students attended school. Now attendance is on the rise and nearly at 90%. Current Nicaraguans believe that having an education is the key to their future. One way they are trying to change is by getting more books. When I left Masatepe, they were in the process of starting up a library. This was the first library in the town and a huge step in improving their education.
13: And because schools like the one that Jordan worked at um, don't really have extracurricular activities, if people want to study those, those, then they have to pursue them in other places. On service, I worked at a cultural center where they have classes in extracurricular activities, particularly the arts, um, for children and adults. Um, so they have um, art classes and music classes and dance classes. And those arts are, are just really an important part of Nicaraguan culture. Um, they're held as valuable in the, the traditions of the past, and, and they were really... Um, important in the revolution, in like mobilizing people and inspiring them to work together.
14: Hi there, my name is Caleb Longenecker and I wanted to talk a little bit more about what Becky was saying about the arts. Many of us know that uh, in Latin American culture, dance is something that's very popular. This was a picture from an event we had at our uh, host house where Doug and Maria stayed and we had some people come in and help teach us how to dance, because we don't know how to dance. And... Well, actually, hold on one second. I want to give a little bit of context to this video. <clears throat> so at the end of, uh, let's see, study, we had, we had a, an event for all of our host families. We had all of our host families come to um, location in Hinotepe and we gave a presentation to them um, kind of thanking them for their hospitality and showing them what we've kind of learned. Some people sang some songs, uh, wrote wrote poems and recited them. Um, The thing that Benson and I did was (coughs) we enacted this dance, this traditional dance called El Viejo y La Vieja. And this is a traditional dance that we replicated pretty well. Um, you'll, you'll see what I mean uh, when you watch it. But this was kind of, I mean, this was like a very famous dance. The Nicaraguans just love this. I showed this video to people on service. They thought it was the greatest, like, ever, so. Uh, it was fun to be able to relate to them um, and uh, be able to learn a traditional dance like this, so. You can try to guess who's who. Enjoyed that as we did. Thanks, Benson. <laughs> All right, I just wanted to reiterate what uh, many of uh, my friends said up here that Goshen, uh, the Goshen SST program is an incredible program. And if anyone is still kind of debating on whether they should go or be a part of this program, I highly, highly encourage it. It's just such a time of immense personal growth and development. Um, and such a such a good time through there's a lot of times where you're, you're struggling a lot um, trying to cope with different things uh, you're in a, you're in a strange culture language barriers um, whatever it may be there's a lot of struggle but also there's a lot of reward and I think we can all say that uh, we gained so much from this experience and I just wanted to flip through some some group photos here. Uh, this was the house which Doug and Maria stayed. Um, we called it uh, La Casa Goshen, and we we would meet here, like Josh said, uh, sometimes uh, in the afternoons. Sometimes we ate lunch here. Um, this was kind of a group check-in. We would always check in with each other, see how we're doing. There we go. There we go. This, um, as Maria said, Doug Sherrick worked for, uh, was a volunteer for Witness for Peace during the uh, Contra War. This was, um, look at him, he's so young.
12: (laughs) (laughs) Um,
14: Yeah, uh, Maria kind of spoke a little bit about this already. Um, This is a Contra group um, that Doug was recording um, different stories from. And Witness for Peace would bring down groups uh, from the United States to kind of learn about um, the happenings. And yeah, in this time, Witness for Peace uh, had a a nice opportunity. Um, Being just the nationality of American, um, they were allowed to have these interactions with Contra, um, Contra fighters, uh, who kind of like weren't supposed to like fight Americans essentially because they were gaining aid from uh, the United States. So this was kind of a unique opportunity um, that Doug had and had a lot of impact on a lot of people. This was uh, Maria uh, in her young age as well, um, hitchhiking on the side of the road. There, you can see her face a little better. Um, This was close to the Honduran border. um, I think kind of close to the end of the war. Uh, as Yuri and Bobby mentioned, we had a visit to the Atlantic coast. Um, Bobby talked a little bit about the uh, autonomy that we learned about, and how uh, the nation is um, yeah, you kind know, very separated by uh, geographical barriers. Um, and while we, while we learned a lot, we also had a nice time at the beach. Uh, had an enjoyable um, day on this island. And yeah, this is a picture from that. And here, this is uh, our dinner in Matagalpa, uh, goofing around before dinner. <laughs> this is another um, group meal that we had uh, at La Laguna de Apoyo. And people who are going to Nicaragua this uh, this summer will definitely go, be able to go here. I'm um, a very popular place, uh, pretty close to a study location. Uh, Aaron Bontrager and I got to play soccer uh, one day and Yeah, a lot of us played a lot of soccer, but actually the most common sport in Nicaragua is baseball and that was brought over kind of introduced by the Marines um, who came And this is we got to visit a, uh, a discoteca as a group um, <laughs> Yuri is breaking it down And this is the Laguna de Apoya, uh, also. This is our trip to Esteli. We gotta hear this this woman's story about, her personal story about how her family was involved in the war. And it was just a a riveting story about um, political tension within her family and how reconciliation has kind of continued to uh, work its way. and just a profound story of forgiveness. Yeah. We also got to hike up uh, Volcan Mombacho, which uh, at the top was a cloud forest, just an isolated um, setting. Uh, and this is a picture from that hike. It was really steep, and actually Jordan and Alejandro ran up the entire thing. I don't know how long it took them, but this was, the grade was just like, it was unreal. And this was in uh, Managua. This is where we studied in the city of uh, Hinotepe. And actually we're missing several people from our group here today. Um, Elise Ramsire, Josh Schneider, and uh, Cor Bratis is not here, are not here. Are, am I missing anyone? Sure. Oh, and Haley Bastin, yes. And This is uh, walking to school. This is our group of, from Dolores. And uh, Josh also walked with us, too. <laughs> And I don't really have a caption for this one. <laughs> Although Seth had the best beard in the group. This is also a managua. And these were our fabulous leaders. Uh, we just want to thank you so much for all of your experience and uh, everything that you taught us. It really wouldn't have been the same without you. So we want to thank you. And, th- and their son, Josh, uh, was with us. And uh, we enjoyed his company as well. Um, so at this point, you are dismissed. Thank you so much for listening to us. And uh, hope you have a great time on your SSTs this summer and next fall.